the invitation. It's a, quite an honor uh, to come across the country and give this seminar. Um, I guess my first slide is a, is a reminder of uh, our version of the sunny California in, the, in San Francisco. If you're coming for, to ADA in a couple of weeks, uh, bring a jacket. Um, it can be rather cold. Um, so um, here's an overall uh, overview of uh, the talk you're going to hear. There's three parts. Um, all are pretty short. One is on the T-Rex function in inflamed eyelids in the nod. Uh, mouse model of type 1 diabetes. And then the second part is going to look at therapeutic T-Rex and how does it impact um, the inflammatory infiltrate in the mouse model. And then some early experience of translating T-Rex therapy into type 1 diabetic patients. And this is my disclosure. I actually have uh, two patterns on T-Rex therapy in, in, um, in general and also in transplantation. And then uh, some of the research, especially the clinical trial part, has been supported uh, in part by BD and then this company called Neostem is going to um, try to uh, productionize T-Reg um, for um, commercial delivery. So quick background just to bring everybody onto the same page and what are T-Regs and I think um, the best Perhaps the analogy is they're the police of the immune system. They make the immune system behave. And then this is a cover on nature immunology, I believe, and years ago, on a special issue focused on regulatory T cells. So these are a small percentage of uh, uh, lymphocytes, 2 to 5%. They can, their role is not to become activated and fight pathogen or, or organ transplant or cause autoimmune disease. On, in the contrary, they actually suppress immune response and other immune cells. This is their phenotype, CD4 positive, CD25 positive, and CD127 <coughs> low. And this is a flow profile of gated on CD4 cells and how they look like, 25 positive, 127 low. And one essential transcription factor for regulatory T cells is FOXP3. It's essential for the development of this lineage of cells in the thymus and also uh, essential for their function. If you don't have FOXP3 as a mouse and they die of early autoimmune, multi-organ autoimmune diseases, and then there's a human disease called IPAX, and then that's various form of uh, FOXP3 mutation and deficiency, and that leads to multi-organ autoimmune diseases as well. So it's an important subset to uh, maintain immune homeostasis. So what does it have to do with type 1 diabetes? Is there any um, specific uh, defect of T-Rex? And this question has been asked ever since T-Rex was found, because uh, actually IPEX patients, some of them, have type 1 diabetes. But if you look at just uh, um, type 1 patient only with type 1 diabetes, um, the finding is actually mixed. And the very early report showed that uh, um, type 1 diabetic patients have a defect. Um, in T-Rex. And then there's a publication to show that, that they may not be defective in number, but only defective, uh, defective in function. And then followed up by a paper and said, nah, it's not defective in either number or function. Um, so this kind of a reports create quite a bit of confusion. And then if you look at them carefully, it has to do with the marker they use at that time. This is pre- um, 
FOXP3 error, so there's no good <coughs> marker to identify T-Rex in humans. And this is also before the discovery of CD127. So some of the markers are not very specific. And, then, um, and also the patients, some are new onset diabetes, some are long-standing uh, diabetes, and that may have contributed to the result. I think it's become more clear in recent years that T-Rex, especially in, in the GWAS study, and there's a lot of alleles associated with T-Rex, such as CTI4, IL-2, IL-2 receptor, uh, as Remy mentioned in the introduction. In fact, this, um, the IL-2 receptor signaling defect had been identified in type 1 diabetic patients, and then they don't seem to signal very efficiently through IL-2 receptor, which is essential for their survival. And then that agrees with some other study to show T-Rex from type 1 diabetic diabetic patients and are prone to uh, ectosis. So this is uh, the, the background in humans, and um, the model used the most to study this disease is called a NOD, non-obese diabetic uh, mouse model. This is also a model we use extensively. And a quick um, background on this mouse is actually was not developed to study diabetes, but cataracts. But the, the, the mice develop diabetes and become one of the best models to study diabetes because uh, it spontaneously develop, infiltrate and in slow destruction of the islets. And it's polygenic, at least 20 genes. They're matched with a human uh, susceptibi uh, susceptibility alleles, so that's nice. And this also has a strong component of environmental influence, such as stress and infections. And um, in fact, if you are in a dirty colony, you can control the diabetes rather well in these strain. So now um, I'm going to start a part <coughs> one of my talk, and then all the talk uh, from this point forward are not published, and um, it's been um, developed. The mouse studies are all in my lab, and then the clinical studies are in collaboration with others at UCSF. Um, so uh, a graduate student in my lab, and Allison Spence, and she was interested in knowing, um, is there a functional regulatory T cells we can actually isolate from patients or from uh, initially from the mouse models? So she looked at this disease development curve. This is percent diabetes. And then this is a normal nod, uh, a regular nod stock. And as you can see, a slowly developed diabetes, uh, the incidence accumulate to 60% by the time they're 25 to 30 weeks of age. <laughs> And if you have a CD28 <coughs> deficient mouse on the NOD background, they have Treg deficiency. The number is reduced by half, and the function is further compromised, and then you have much accelerated disease. And so she looked at these two curves, and, and her conclusion that there must be some functional defect in the NOD mouse that caused this delay. And then uh, she, um, another evidence for these, the existence of functional Treg is this curve. This is a low-dose IL-2 therapy in not mice that Remy mentioned. And then we took mice and gave them a low-dose of IL-2 in this um, 10 to 20 weeks of age. And then this is how a, um, effective it, it is at preventing the disease. So we reasoned that the functional T-Rex are boosted by the IL-2 therapy and to prevent the disease. So she wants to go um, set up her thesis project to identify functional T-Rex in the not mouse and see how their homeostasis and functions um, are regulated. And then this is how um, an inf inflamed 
eyelid looks like in the mouse. This is what we call the mild encephalitis to moderate to severe. And then here we sing for CD4 in blue. And then uh, insulin in red and FOXP3 also in red, but there, there are these um, dots instead of the diffused uh, um, smear of insulin staining. And we also sing for KI67 to look for activation of the cells in the tissue. So you can see here, um, T-Rex infiltrate these uh, lesions very early, these red dots, and then they continue to accumulate with <coughs> more severe insulitis. And then they tend to be aggregated at the, at the even a boundary between the remaining insulin-producing tissue and the infiltrate. And this is also where lots of antigen presentation is happening, lots of dendritic cells are there, so they're being activated. So Allison reasoned that she needs to use an activation marker to identify functional T-Reg. They need to be activated. She picked a CD103, and mainly we can focus on the bottom part of this list is that it's have been reported, they're expressed on a subset of effector memory cells, and then they're highly suppressive in vitro, and they're also more effective at controlling acute inflammation. This is in the collagen-induced arthritis model and colitis model. And the reason they're more effective was argued by the authors that they have the CD103, which is an adhesion molecule, allow them to very efficiently home to the site of inflammation and then start to function there. So she looked at um, CD103 expression in the now mouse. And then this is a chronic inflamed model, right? Not like the um, acute model. So what she found is that uh, the CD103 positive, COXP3 positive, the T-Rex, are enriched in the eyelids, up to 30% um, in, the, in the inflamed eyelids. And it's higher than, than anywhere else, than pancreatic lymph node, inguinal lymph node in, in the spleen. And then if you look at the kinetics of this population, um, the CD3-positive T-Rex, uh, over age, um, early on when you mostly primarily have this mild insulitis and they're very low in frequency. And then this is when the moderate insulitis start to build up and then they jump up. And then with onset of diabetes, they seem to lose the number. This is just another way to present the data by binning the age of the mice. You can see this. Um, a, a quick um, development of these cells in the eyelid lesion and the loss of these cells in diabetic mice. So this is now phenotyping by flow cytometry to look at these cells and then indeed these cells are activated. Um, so the orange is CD103 positive population and then the blue is a CD103 negative T-Rex and compared to conventional CD4 T cells and CD8 cells in eyelids. And then they have higher FOXP3, higher CTI4 expressed on the cell surface, and higher ICOS, higher CD25, this is a high affinity IL2 receptor component, low CD127, and a high proliferation marker, KI67. So she was happy. These results are all very consistent um, to show that the CD103 identified this activated Treg. And then she wants to know how these cells are regulated in the eyelids. Uh, what she did is she isolated uh, CD103 negative T-Rex from the eyelids, from not mice, and then transferred them into a, um, a young CD28 knockout mouse to see what 
becomes of these cells after transfer, um, after three to six weeks. So if you look um, at this, um, the, the cells in different compartments after transfer, in the eyelids, they actually, uh, almost half of them gain CD25, uh, CD103 uh, expression. And then they maintain FOXP3 expression if they gain CD103 expression. And a half of them didn't, and then actually part of them lost FOXP3. So um, we think that this population contain the cells that are capable of become activated and they become CD103 positive. This only, sorry, this only happens in the islets. And if you look in other compartment in the pancreatic lymph node that drains islet antigen, this doesn't happen as much. And then this um, similar is uh, found similarly in the uh, spleen. But yeah. C103 is alpha EM. So yes. It's an epithelial incoherent binding integrin. Um, I mean, couldn't that just be a retention marker in the islets? And, and therefore, the ones that are there and stay in the islets are enriched with C103. Right. Yeah. That's, I think, part of the complication of using this marker. Um, as a way to, to mark the regulatory T, uh, or activated T-Rex in the tissue. She also used ICOS. I think she prefers CD103 just because it's a better separation. I actually think ICOS might be a better marker. Um, if you remember from the activation panel, actually there are ICOS very high. And then those cells are also found um, selectively activated in the, in the islets. So what if you transfer CD103 positive T-Rex, um, uh, the same way we did it with um, the CD103 negative T-Rex. Now you can see that uh, they, um, you actually found um, most of the uh, cells in the islets themselves, and this may have to do with their expression of this um, adhesion molecules and preferential homing and retention in the islets. And in the islets, they maintained CD103 expression for most part and maintain FOXP3 expression almost always. Very few cells were found in the pancreatic lymph node, and some actually can be found in the spleen. Um, but in the spleen, they seem to lose the CD103 expression. So what these transfer studies showed us is that the CD103 negative cells can gain CD103 positivity um, when they're in the islets. And then the CD103 positive cells maintain their CD103 positivity. So what maintains them there? Could be the adhesion molecules, but Allison's best guess is that they must be, they may be antigen specific. It's the islet antigen that are found in the islets that maintain them there. So how do we look at um, antigen reactivity and TCR activation? She uh, uh, took advantage of uh, this reporter mouse called a NER77 reporter. Uh, this is a nuclear uh, receptor. It's turned on specifically after TCR engagement. And then there are two labs. One is at Minnesota, um, Kristen Hoquist, and also at um, UCSF by Art Weiss, developed a NER77 GIP reporter mice. And this is a, the Art Weiss reporter um, crossed to the not background. And then you can see here, this is a um, purified CD4, CD8 cells uh, from the NER77 reporter mice and stimulated for 16 hours in vitro and uh, with different dose of anti-CD3. 
on the CD4 and the CD8, you can see with increasing dose of anti-CD3, you have higher percentage of GFP-positive cells. And also the GFP mean fluorescing intensity increase. Um, so we think this, actually the GFP um, in the NER77 report, there is a good indication of their TCR activation. <coughs> So now if you look at in these reporter mice and then look at the Tregs in conventional CD4 cells and CD8s and then see how um, their GAP immunofluorescence is like, and you may just want to focus on the eyelid right away, that the Tregs in the eyelid have the highest level of GAP. This line indicates um, the separation of transgene negative on the left mouse and versus the transient positive pattern you can see. And then this line is indicate the highest, um, the, the middle of the peak in, in eyelids, found in the eyelid T-Rex. You can compare that they're higher uh, than in the pancreatic lymph node than in the spleen, um, and they're higher than the expression by conventional T-cells in the eyelid and by CD8 T-cells. So if you now further separate the islet T-Rex into uh, the CD103 positive and negative, you can see the CD103 positive are higher yet in this NER77 reporter expression. And this is the multiple mice summarized. You can see the mean fluorescent intensity of the CD103 is higher. And uh, Ron Germain reported that um, CD5 a cell surface molecule is also upregulated specifically after TCR engagement. So we thought we want to um, um, complement the reporter finding to see if CD5 was upregulated. Indeed, that agreed very, very well with the NER77. Um, so we think these cells are activated in the islets um, by islet antigen. And then this made us consider that perhaps they're proliferating and they're activated and they, they, these cells may, um, may have a different repertoire when compared to the CD103 negative cells and compared to T cells in the periphery. To study the repertoire, we actually sequence a TCR beta chain of a um, T-Rex isolated from islets versus spleen and separated by CD103. And this is looking at TCR beta clonality and in that to see whether they're very oligoclonal, which will have an index of one, or monoclonal, it will have an index of one, versus very diverse, and that will have an index approaching zero. So the CD103 positive Tregs in the islets have a clonality of 0.13. This is actually very diverse. It surprised us. We thought it's going to be somewhat oligoclonal and then dominant by a few clones, and this is not the case. Uh, nonetheless, they're less diverse compared to CD103 uh, positive Tregs, in which are very, very diverse. And they're also more diverse, uh, uh, less diverse compared to the CD103 positive spinal Tregs. This made us to um, to think to uh, to ask the question whether these two populations are related. Can you find the clone in the islets in the periphery, uh, in the spleen? And they both express CD103. Do these cells actually leave islet and accumulate in the spleen? And this, we perform this TCR similarity analysis. You can look at the sequence and to see if they're similar or not. Compared to uh, the CD103, um, <coughs> I don't know if this uh, is, 
So if you compare the CD1, this, I um, apologize, <laughs> this is actually reverse. This is CD103 positive islet T-Rex. Um, that, um, and then this is CD103 positive islet T-Rex. So they actually, if you compare the CD103, there are both of the label for the swing, this positive first and negative, and positive and negative, okay? So if you compare the positive versus positive in the islet and spleen, there's only 7, 8% overlap or similarity between them. It's very low. Whereas you compare the 103 positive versus the 103 negative islet tears, <coughs> now you have 25% um, overlap in the, in the sequence. So this suggests that these two sequences are more similar, even uh, this is a whole lot more diverse um, than, than the um, spleen sequence. So then she further separated the T-regs in the islets by NER77 expression. She reasoned that the overlap, the 25% overlap between these two populations must be uh, driven by the antigen reactivity. So this population, 103 negative population, may contain antigen-specific Tregs, and then they must be NER77 high. And this indeed is the case. So if you look at now, the NER77 high CD103 positive Tregs, they overlap with the NER77 high CD103 negative Treg by 40%. So they're enriched in the NER77 positive population, where they're depleted in the NER77 negative population. So this suggests, and these two populations are indeed related. And if they have the antigen reactivity in the islets, they can gain CD103 and then become activated. And then these may identify the functional T-Rex. So to really uh, prove their function, she performed this uh, adoptive transfer experiment, uh, flow sorted these different subsets of islet T-Rex, and then transferred into a CD20 knockoff mice that develop a very rapid onset of diabetes if you don't treat. And if you treat with CD103 positive T-Rex, it's more effective than the CD103 negative T-Rex. Um, so she's continuing on this and trying to identify cytokines and growth factors that may be regulating their homeostasis and we're still, um, so this is remained to be an unfinished story. Um, but so far, what she has found was that functional T-Rex in inflamed islets express CD103. I should add ICOS here. And they have a more activated phenotype, are activated in the islets, we think by islet antigens, and they have a narrower TCR repertoire with minimal overlap with peripheral T-Rex. So if you want to study T-Rex in humans in peripheral blood, um, the chance of finding these cells is, is low. <coughs> And they're more effective at suppressing type 1 diabetes in a mouse model. So um, the second part, this transitions into the second part in that here we use an islet antigen-specific T-Rex to treat type 1 diabetes. And this is T-Rex from BDC, TCR transgenic cells, and they're highly effective at suppressing this disease. And this is one infusion of 150,000 of these cells and then you can completely prevent diabetes. In fact, it's a <coughs> therapy in our mouse colony, and then if we need to breed the mice, we give them a, a dose of T-Rex, and they remain, um, they can um, actively breed for 20-some weeks um, in our colony. So it's a drug for our, for our mice. And then so Ashley, a graduate student who just uh, graduated and left my lab to start her postdoc um, this week, actually, uh, 
she decided to ask the question, how do T-Rex therapy control this um, um, very aggressive inflammation? And she focused on the islets. If you look at these islets um, treated with BDC 2.5 T-Rex, you can see the T-Rex actually infiltrate the islet very rapidly. And then these are marked by the Thai 1-1 expression. And then they hung to these islets, and she found that depend on the degree of inflammation, the, the more severe um, inflamed islets tend to have more of these T-Rex. Um, and so they respond to the inflammatory cues and then they traffic to these more inflamed <coughs> islets more effectively. And then they, what surprised her is it didn't clear the infiltrate. We didn't see clean islets even months after um, they're stably non-diabetic for a long time. The infiltrate remained to be like this, and the islet actually, T-Rex remained in the islets like this. So she looked at to see if uh, how quickly this um, um, function of the islet is reversed. A progression of uh, beta cell destruction is reversed. She monitored insulin one, insulin two. These are two promoters in the mouse insulin, uh, for mouse insulin uh, production in the islets. Mm -hmm. So you can see here untreated, and then they, they, um, this is the insulin one um, at the baseline before treatment at five weeks of age, and then it actually decreased um, in the matter of a week. This is stays. You can see the decrease. When you treat with T-Rex, it stabilized that, uh, even slightly increased. And this is the same for the insulin two that decreased uh, if you don't treat and then stabilized and even perhaps increased after T-Rex treatment very quickly in, in a matter of, of days. And then she further looked at in the islets and looking at the inflammatory cytokines, she developed this 96 uh, PCR array in, in a 96 well plate and then uh, that have all these inflammatory markers reported to be expressed in the, in the inflamed islets. And then here is comparing age-matched control versus T-Rex um, received uh, mice received T-Rex treatment at seven days, uh, for seven days, and then compare gene expression. If a T-Rex suppress the gene, they will fall off this diagonal. If it increase the expression, they will actually go above this diagonal. You can see actually most of the genes, these inflammatory genes are below the diagonal, and this dash line is a fourfold below the diagonal. What really caught her eyes are um, that this pattern of um, a CTL signature. There's CD8 alpha, granzyme A, granzyme B, gamma interferon, and then gamma interferon regulated um, um, CXCR3, and, and then CXCL9 chemokine that binds to CXCR3. And then this CTL signature, she didn't think it was from NK cells because this is actually an NK marker. It also decreased, but NK is a very small fraction of the infiltrate in the islands. And then they actually um, are defective in the mouse model. So she thinks it's actually a CD8 defect. And then she went on to characterize the CD8 T cell uh, impact of T-Rex therapy on the CD8 T cells. And then here she actually adopted, transferred a islet antigen reactive um, T cell from uh, 8.3 TCR transgenic mice labeled with CFSC to look at their activation in the pancreatic lymph node versus islets. If, you, if the mice have been previously treated with T-Rex, you can see the proliferation of 8.3 in the pancreatic lymph node is suppressed. 
And then um, as a control, she also included the BDC 2.5 effector T cells. And then their proliferation is also suppressed in the pancreatic lymph node. This is consistent with what we published before. In the lymph node, T-Rex can suppress the proliferation of uh, antigen-reactive T cells. Whereas in the eyelid, she didn't see much change in proliferation. All the cells proliferated very efficiently. Whereas when you look at effector cytokine production, this is looking at gamma interferon production um, by these transfer cells, CD4 here and CD8 on the bottom. And then without T-Rex, she could readily detect gamma interferon production by these cells using this in vivo BRD, uh, in vivo uh, Bifaldin A treatment. So actually she transferred the cells and then before killing the mice, and she gave them an infusion injection of profiling A to stop cytokine production to allow the gamma interferon to accumulate inside the cell. And then she uh, take out the eyelids and incubated them for um, a few hours ex vivo. So all this production is stimulated by endogenous eyelid antigen, and she could detect the robust gamma interferon production. This is almost completely blocked in the eyelids by a t prior T-Rex therapy. And then here's a summary of multiple mice that she has done. And um, she also uh, looked at endogenous T-cells and CD4s and CD8s and then saw that she could detect gamma interferon production by these cells, which is also blocked by T-Rex. And you can see here the summary. What surprised her when she looked at RNA expression, gamma interferon RNA expression, she had done this so many times because she wants to see a diminution of RNA, gamma interferon RNA, she never saw it. So she reasoned that this must be regulated actually at the protein level. Um, the cells are fully capable of making gamma interferon, um, but they don't uh, because of the T-Rex therapy. So what might control this translational regulation of gamma interferon? And uh, we guessed that might be um, cytokine signaling. Um, with a lot of data I'm skipping, that she showed that the enritic cell wasn't uh, dramatically changed by T-Rex therapy at this time. And she also showed by two-photon imaging that the T-cells continue to engage with the enritic cell. So we don't think it's an antigen or a co-stimulation. So she wants to ask whether the cytokine is affecting this. And so she blocked IO2 signaling by blocking CD25. And then she saw a diminution of gamma interferon expression ex vivo not as robust as she would like. And then she reasoned that maybe they can, the cells can see other common gamma chain cytokines. So she used a, a JAK3 inhibitor to inhibit all common gamma chain signaling. This includes IL-7 and IL-15. And now she saw a more robust inhibition of gamma interferon production, ex vivo. So she thinks it's in the islets somehow T-Rex controlled common gamma chain signaling, maybe by depriving the um, effector cells of, the, of these cytokines. And what she also found is that, that uh, the phospho-S6, a um, factor downstream of mTOR uh, signaling, was inhibited um, by either blocking CD25 or by blocking JAK3 and in CD4 and CD8 cells. Actually, it's more dramatic in CD8. So she wants to see if this is indeed happening in vivo, and she performed immunofluorescent uh, analysis um, for phospho S6 and then, uh, then co-stain for CD8 
you can see that these cells that the co-express CD8 and phospho-X6 indeed can be readily identified in the infiltrated islets. If you give T-Rex and the phospho-X6 disappeared. Here is an example from one um, um, mouse and then here is a summary of multiple mice she analyzed. So what she has found is that islet antigen-specific T-Rex therapy prevents diabetes, but it does not in eliminate immune infiltrate. <coughs> and then T-Rex therapy leads to rapid loss of the CCL signature in the islets. And maintenance of these effector uh, function in the islets, she believes, uh, requires sustained cytokine signaling and mTOR activation in T-Rex therapy. Um, does not suppress effector T-cell proliferation, but, um, uh, but block mTOR activation, therefore blocking the effector function. So with that, how much time I'm going to, um, I'd like to transition into the last part of uh, translating T-Rex cell therapy into patients. And this is actually really not my work. I'm just um, presenting it. It's a, the, this study is led by Jeff Bluestone and Steve Gitterman at UCSF and in collaboration with Kevin Harold at Yale. It's an open-label dose escalation uh, pilot study, phase one. And then um, the um, patients enrolled are 18 to 45 um, years of age, and they received a single infusion of T-Rex. And these are the inclusion criteria. They must be type 1 diabetic, uh, recent onset, 3 to 24 months. In fact, most of our patients we enrolled are closer to the 24 months than 3 months because it's unproven therapy and, uh, of safety and efficacy. We want the best patient have a best shot at other therapies. And um, they must have detectable C-peptides, so allowed us to assess the toxicity of the treatment. And then these are the um, infections. They must not have chronic infection um, around the time of infusion. No history of malignancy, because we worry about over-immunosuppression by infusing a T-Rex. And, um, and then exacerbate these conditions. And then the T-Reg manufacturing is done by uh, starting with T-Reg purification using flow cytometry and then gated on the lymphocytes and CD4s and CD25 and 127. With this uh, protocol, you can isolate very pure T-Regs that here is measured by FOXP3 expression. And I'm gonna have a summary of all the production we have done. So this example is 94%. The cells are then placed into culture, simulated with anti-CD3, anti-CD28, two rounds of stimulation on day zero and day nine. And then they were fed with IO2, a 300 unit per ml um, throughout. They were analyzed on day 14 um, for their phenotype and function, and they're released for infusion on the same day. And this work is led by uh, Amy Putman, um, she has been um, uh, the leader of the group in, in, in um, adapting the <coughs> protocol to GMP compliance and performed all the manufacturing and led all the manufacturing in the facility. So there are four cohorts in this study. All 14 patients in the four cohorts have um, completed their infusion in, in the follow-up phase. And the one-year follow-up, um, the last patient will be October this year. And then the four cohorts are a uh, 5 million 
and 40 million, 220 million, and 2.6 billion uh, T-Rex infusion. This is eight times, uh, eight-fold dose escalation. And then here is, uh, the patients actually donate one unit of blood on day zero, and this is how much T-Rex, uh, how many T-Rex we managed to purify, 6.6 .6 million <coughs> on average. And um, the purity of the T-Rex measured by FOXP3 expression is 98% on average. And the final yield after 14-day expansion is 4 billion T-Rex, and the average fold expansion is 555-fold, and then the purity of the cells at the end of the expansion is 92%. Uh, our release criteria is 60% FOXP3 positive, and these are actual number infused into the patient. One thing worth pointing out is that three patients, blue, uh, indicated by blue color here, are from Yale. So they collected the blood at Yale and they shipped the blood across the country to, the, to UCSF when we made the cells there and then shipped it back for infusion. One um, neat thing we could do because of the expansion we have done is we can label these cells with stable uh, um, isotype deuterium by feeding the cultures with deuterated glucose. And then the, the, the deuterium gets incorporated into DNA through this process. And you can see at the end of the culture, uh, if you label with deuterium, you can detect a 60% enrichment um, of deuterium in, in the uh, manufactured T-regs. If you don't, the background is extremely low. The assays um, can detect uh, up to 0.1% of, um, of deuterium. So now in infuse the cells, we have an ability to detect the infused cells in circulation. And then these, um, this technique has been applied to the last two cohort, uh, the last seven patients in the study. And then the blue, or the patient receives 320 million of these T-Regs, and the red are the ones that receive 2.6 billion uh, of these T-Regs. And then you can see um, the T-Regs, um, infused T-Regs rapidly appeared in circulation and they peaked at two weeks after infusion and then start to decay and disappear from the circulation. This problem with this technique is actually we cannot, we don't know where they, whether they died or whether they went into uh, lymphoid organs or peripheral tissue, but they dif disappeared from circulation and that's all we can say. Another thing that surprised us, uh, before us, people have done T-Reg therapy in GVHD. It's been reported um, that T-Reg only lasts for two weeks in GVHD. And we can clearly detect these T-Regs at three months after infusion at both doses. In fact, some of the, the 320 million we followed up to six uh, months, and you can still detect them above the background level, um, above the sensitivity <coughs> of the acid at six months in circulation. So these cells, at least some of them, could be long-lasting in the patients. One other thing is we can kind of uh, assess whether these cells are stable or not, at least in circulation. The last slide I show you were sorted T-regs. We sorted T-regs and subject them to this uh, mass spec analysis or, or, um, for uh, deuterium. And then this is the orange here you can detect. This, I think, is at uh, three months after infusion. You can detect 2% of uh, deuterium. Um, um, among, in the T-reg population. We also sorted this, what we call the non-T-regs, the conventional T-cells. 
And if the T infused T-Reg become unstable, lose the T-Reg phenotype, they will appear in this population. We also figured, because they were CD, um, they were CD45RO positive and then CD62L high uh, at the end of the culture expansion at the time of infusion. So if they lose FOXP3 or lose the, the T-Reg phenotype, they will appear in this pink population. If they further lose CD62L, they will appear in the blue population. So we separated the three population and then looked at the deuterium enrichment. We've never detected any above the um, sensitivity of the assay. So this is promising, suggesting to us perhaps the T-Rex we infuse are stable, at least those survived um, are stable. So here's just a very quick summary on the clinical data. Um, this is mostly, um, this is a phase one study, so most of the summary here is on adverse events. There are a total of um, 91 adverse events, and this is their separation by severity. Those are possibly related to the therapy, are uh, 30 of them, and then a total of three uh, serious adverse events, and none of them were related to the therapy. Now, what we were really interested in were whether there are infections and whether this Treg in, in, uh, increased their chance of infection. So there are 24 altogether thus far. I think the data was uh, January this year of documented infections. <coughs> and if you break them down, it's 24. Seven of them happened within three months after Treg infusion when the cell numbers are highest. And then the infection on the day, actually there are um, three of them actually we happened to find afterwards they actually had infection on the day of the infusion. So this is unlikely to be caused by the T-Rex. But what's interesting about these three patients, three cases of infection, is that they all cleared without treatment. Um, so we think um, despite the very high dose of T-Rex therapy, and likely these patients can actually um, clear infections and then not um, have overall immuno or global immunosuppression. And then their diabetes parameters, A1C, C-peptide, all the antibody, and insulin uh, consumption or need are all stable at this time. So here's a summary of, um, of the last part um, of the talk, is that the polychronal human T-Rex can be readily expanded under GMP <coughs> condition. And then we can produce up to 5 billion, I guess I should say, yeah, 5 billion T-Rex can be produced in two weeks from one unit of blood donation. Actually, this can be done actually with leukophoresis. Um, the rate-limiting step in this whole process is flow sorting. It takes, we have two flow sorters sitting in our GMP facility. It takes uh, about eight weeks, uh, uh, not eight weeks, eight hours, um, two sorters to, uh, to purify the cells. And that's really the limit of our manufacturing team and the facility. Um, up to 2.6 billion T-Rex have been infused into patients without safety concerns. And expanded T-Rex can be labeled using deuterium and then can be used to monitor T-Rex after infusion. And the phase two trial is being planned. And then lastly, I just want to bring this out. Now, our paper, um, on mouse um, T-Rex therapy, T-Rex therapy in mouse um, was published in 2004 where we demonstrated the efficacy of IVD antigen-specific T-Rex in controlling the disease. And the first patient in this study was infused in 2012 
there's an eight year in, in, the, in the pharmaceutical development, this is actually rather fast. So with that, I would acknowledge, I would like to acknowledge the team. I think I acknowledge most of the people throughout the way. And then this graduate student, two of them, performed the mouse studies in my lab. Here is our T-Reg manufacturing team. Actually, the team has expanded uh, now that we have many transplant trials planned. And then these are our collaborators and funding agencies. And we do have sunny days in California. <laughs> Thank you. Questions? You mean in the human study? In the human yeah, study. they're polyclonal T-Rex, and they're expanded with uh, polyclonal stimulation, anti-CD3, anti-CD28. And uh, we also analyzed their TCR diversity. Uh, after expansion, they're extremely diverse. And so if there are islet antigen-specific T-Rex, they're a very, very, very small fraction uh, among this population we infused. And you think it's because small fraction um, they, well, based on the mouse study, yes. I think they're not circulating. If, if We didn't do mouse uh, anal blood analysis in mouse, but I tend to think they're equivalent. They exchange in and out of the spleen, so they might be equivalent to the spleen. Based on the mouse study, I don't think they circulate very much, especially if they're activated. And one encouraging thing is that this is, a, what's his name? Um, Backhoff. Paul Backhoff, um, he's a cancer immunologist in Germany. He actually analyzed antigen-specific, tumor antigen-specific T-Rex in circulation. And then his control antigen is actually pro-insulin. Um, she, I mean, he, um, in his uh, publication, also in his presentation, he showed repeatedly he could detect some pro-insulin uh, reactive T-Rex in circulation. So even though the frequency is low, you can detect them. The selective expansion of, cell, of these cells is very, very challenging technically. Uh, because they're low in number to produce an effective dose, it may um, take a lot of expansion. You have to drive them into a cell cycle, and then the cells actually may, may die or may lose FOXP3 if you drive them too hard. Um, I mean, you say you don't see any negative safety concerns, but could you imagine any, anything adverse could happen based on overwhelming the immune system with a large number of T-Rex that have nothing to do with the autoimmunity and diabetes. Right, so we definitely consider that. And what's the definition or what's the threshold for overwhelming the immune system um, with T-Rex? And what number is that? We actually well, I didn't have a chance to, to um, present that. We actually, based on the publication, counted how many T-Rex are there in the human body. Uh, the bottom line is we think there's 13 billion T-Rex, if you count all the T-Rex in circulation, in the spleen, lymph node, gut, lung, and, and liver, and all the peripheral tissues that have been published. So 13 billion T-Rex is what you have. And then 2.6 billion is what we, uh, the highest dose we infused. Um, it is a significant dose. We actually, right after infusion, we could detect this increase of T-Rex in circulation without the deuterium labeling. So 
and then they quickly uh, disappeared from the circulation. I think, um, you know, it's been reported, it's actually very hard to change Treg number for long term because their homeostasis is maintained by IO2 availability, for example, and then they may not um, be elevated um, chronically um, after infusion. And what will make the immune system dysfunctional? Um, what number of T-Rex will make the immune system dysfunctional? So if you analyze the literature, really looking at a tumor setting or to control transplant rejection, we have done a lot of that, is that you need to reach a threshold of 30% T-Rex among CD4 cells, at least that number, to make the immune system um, dysfunctional and difficult to activate. And I think we're far from that threshold. In fact, we're trying to get to that threshold in the transplant trials. Thank you. Thank you for coming for your presentation. Um, as someone else who works with T-Rex, I'm excited to see more evidence for the powerful yeah. effects of you know, T-Rex. My question for you is uh, to learn more about the clinical effects of, of this treatment. Your, your slide showed that after the treatment for the infusion of T-Rex, the insulin use, C-peptide, all that is stable. But um, I don't really have a great sense of um, how T-Rex can be used to treat not transplant rejection, let's say, but a disease process that by the time it's diagnosed has largely occurred already. Um, so how are these people having better quality of life or, or do they still just remain on, on insulin? Are they getting better in some sense? What, what are the clinical benefits of this program? Yeah, I guess it's a, a, there are endocrinologists in, in the audience that can speak to this. It's a, it, there's a lot of value of preserving the residual insulin production. Right? If they lose all the insulin production, it, it's a it, it, it's much more difficult disease to live with. So that's the, the hope that you will be able to will be able to uh, preserve um, the residual insulin production that you can they still have at the time of diagnosis. And um, we only enrolled adults because FDA won't allow any kids to be enrolled in in these early trials, even phase two. And um, a group in Poland actually have infused kids 8 to 16 weeks of age. And what they found um, is that the infusion of a large dose of T-Rex, they did 20 million per kilo, they actually have kids off insulin. So, um, in fact, they, they see an increase in C-peptide production afterwards, and then the patient's uh, two-year follow-up remain to be uh, off insulin. So perhaps the disease in the kids is going to be different, and then you can um, preserve better insulin production, even perhaps reverse the disease course. That's clearly the case <coughs> in the mouse model, that we can take new-onset diabetic mice and then see um, um, them to become disease-free after the infusion. Going back to the mouse model, um, I was a bit confused by what's going on Actual level of infiltration. 
Yeah, we, we actually, I skipped that slide. We actually quantified uh, the loss of the CDA signature in part is because reduced inflammation, uh, reduced infiltrate, inflammatory cell load actually decreased, mostly for CD8 and some for CD4s. And then this can be quantified uh, by flow cytometry, also by uh, just looking at the, the um, trans <coughs> transferred cells. <coughs> we think this is actually, it could be survival, and also because the trafficking of cells into the islet was reduced because the chemokine CXCL9 was reduced we actually did a transfer and then saw there's a significant reduction in the accumulation of these cells. And so the number reduced, and then, but the remaining cells that remained in the islets were further suppressed. Um, their, their effective function was further so suppressed. So per cell, the effective function was reduced. Right, so the the, 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 the is per cell. It's by flow cytometry, yeah. So following up on that, you showed in your mouse model that the more Infl uh, inflammation you have in the islets and the more T-reg uh, homing you get. So in the expanded human T-regs, do you, do you look at the chemokine receptor expression and is it homogeneous? I mean, since they activated, you would expect some CXCL3 expression? Maybe? Yeah, there are some change. I actually don't remember the data. We looked at, um, we actually, um, did we look? We looked at CCR, um, 9, CCR6, CCR4, and CFCR3. <coughs> and I actually don't remember the data before and after expansion. I think more of that kind of analysis needs to be done. We actually haven't done a whole lot of that. In, in a mouse therapy version, do you actually inject naive T-Rex or activated T-Rex? The mouse is also expanded. It's also it's a, expanded. We did in vitro uh, expansion, yeah. Or from we isolate the cells from BDCTCR uh, transgenic mouse from the lymphoid organs and expand them in vitro, put them in liquid nitrogen and infuse whenever we need to. Yes. Do you have any comments about uh, feasibility of uh, shipping the mice, uh, no, shipping the cells uh, so far? Do you see any yeah, so we, we've done a lot of uh, uh, those kind of analysis on um, stability of the cells. And um, so they, if you maintain the temperature and then control the density, they are quite stable, but they can be impacted by the density and, and, the, and the temperature. So high density, meaning above 10 million per ml, and a high temperature above, at room temperature, for example, at 20 degrees, they actually lose FOXP3. Uh, they can lose FOXP3 over, over the shipment period. So um, it's, it, it needs to be carefully um, controlled. It's extremely expensive. To, we have couriers <coughs> to deliver these. And then a collaborator in, actually in, in Korea wants to do this, and they plan to send people uh, to, to uh, ferry the cells back and forth um, to, to make sure they're stable. But that's an important component of developing this therapy for wider use. 